0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today's episode is one that we were working on for a live show, and then the live show got canceled, so I kind of put this episode on hold for a bit. Because uh, that actually worked out well, because I wanted to spend a little additional time with it. Uh, We were talking today about Carmen Miranda. And right out of the gate, I will say, we are going to use the pronunciation that is used here in the Americanized version. This is not in any way to diminish her her, uh, Portuguese, Brazilian, Spanish-speaking heritage. I know a lot of um, Latin American countries say it with a different accent. Yeah. We're not doing it not because we are trying to erase that, but because when we say it, it sounds comedically bad and kind of horrible.
1: Yeah, it sounds like we're doing a bad impression of a Spanish or Portuguese-accented voice.
0: Yes, it sounds like horrible sitcom acting, and we don't want to do that. So know that when we are going with the Carmen Miranda pronunciation, it is in fact out of respect for that and not wanting to make it sound silly and goofy. And she is one of those historical figures who, even though she has been dead for decades, remains hugely iconic. We still see her image or some derivative of it on a regular basis in popular culture, in art, in old movies that still play, even though it gets less and less likely a lot of the time that the people that see that image even really get the reference or understand who it came from. Uh, But Miranda was a really unique performer. She was Utterly luminous on camera. If you haven't ever seen any of her films, I highly recommend it. Some of them are very silly, but she is just a delight to watch. She was an excellent singer. She had a personality that was way bigger than her tiny, tiny stature. She was very petite. There was a reason that she was an international superstar. Uh, She kind of is one of those people that when uh, you hear people speak about that, like, it factor that people who sometimes become hugely famous have... I feel like if you watch her perform, you immediately go, oh, that's what it is, because it's hard to define. But when you see someone who really has it, it becomes obvious, and that is the case with Carmen Miranda. And we're going to take a little peek at her life story today.
1: She was born Maria do Carmo Miranda da Cunha on February 9th of 1909, and she's usually identified as a Brazilian. She was actually born in Marco de Canaveses, Portugal. Her family moved to Brazil, though, when she was still just a baby, before even her first birthday. Her parents had several more children after they moved to Brazil. Yeah, she always pretty much
0: identified as Brazilian as well. And she was educated in a convent school as a child, in part because her father thought it was the safest option for his daughters. Part of that was because they didn't live in a particularly wealthy part of town, and he just thought sending them to convent school was the safest option. And as Carmen got older, she started working in retail jobs to make a little money. And part of that need for her to be making an income really came, unfortunately, from family tragedy. Her oldest sister had died after battling tuberculosis. And the medical expenses that that uh, treatment had incurred had really left a family with very little.
1: Her parents opened a boarding house in the 1920s, and it attracted Rio's art crowd this was really pivotal for Carmen because it was there that she met guitarist Josue de Barros. Yeah, she was
0: still working retail jobs during the day, but nights and weekends, she worked at the boarding house. When Carmen was still a teenager, de Barros got her a job singing on the radio. She would sometimes sing to entertain the people at the boarding house, and he immediately recognized her talent. But this was a time when entertainers in Brazil, particularly women entertainers, were not seen as having particularly honorable jobs. So this was actually a very real problem for Carmen's family. She ended up keeping her
1: radio performances secret, especially from her father. In a very short period of time, just weeks, she went from unknown to rising star to just a superstar in the South American music scene and it was around this time that she adopted the stage name Carmen Miranda.
0: Yeah, I uh, had read one thing that suggested that she initially adopted that name as part of kind of keeping her work on the dl from her family and particularly her father but i think that was not something that she could have maintained for very long anyway uh her first two recordings were made in 1929 they were very popular but then in 1930 she recorded a song tai which became a huge hit it sold more than 35,000 records which is a massive number at the time And that success led to her first recording contract with RCA Victor. And from the age of 21, when she was signed, to when she turned 23 two years later, she recorded 71 songs with RCA.
1: For the next nine years, Carmen Miranda was Brazil's sweetheart. She was tiny, as Holly alluded to earlier, just five feet tall, less than 100 pounds, but she was like a charisma bomb. Her songs were written by the most popular and skilled musicians of the era, and they were upbeat and playful, and then when it came to her live performances, nobody could work the crowd like Carmen Miranda.
0: So it really became pretty natural for her to carry all of that talent and charisma onto the silver screen. In 1935, she made her first feature film, Estudantes, followed closely by another titled Alo, Alo, Carnival, the same year. And her sister, Aurora Miranda, also appeared in that second film. Carmen made five films in Brazil, and her records were huge hits. At the age of 27, she was the highest paid singer in the country.
1: For her 1939 film, Banana de Terra, Carmen adopted a new look with a costume that referenced those of the baianas. These are the women of Bahia in northwestern Brazil. Traditionally, the baianas wore full white cotton skirts with wrapped headscarves that were sometimes stacked on top of their heads. Miranda's look was gl- a glamorized version of this traditional dress, and it became instantly iconic and propelled Miranda to even greater heights of fame.
0: We're going to come back to uh, the women of Bahia in just a bit, but a producer named Lee Schubert saw Carmen perform in a casino in Rio de Janeiro in the late 1930s, and he signed her to star in the Broadway musical The Streets of Paris. On May 4th, 1939, Carmen Miranda left Brazil behind as she sailed away on a cruise ship. That Broadway show debuted less than two weeks later on May 17th of 1939. Miranda appeared alongside Luella Gear, Bobby Clark, Bud Al- Abbott, and Lou Costello, who've been topics on the show before. She also brought her band along with her to New York to play in the show, and that was all thanks to the sponsorship of Brazilian President Itulio Vargas.
1: Vargas had run for president in Brazil in 1930 in a reform- as a reform candidate, and he had lost... There had been plenty of corruption involved in every camp during this election, but Vargas was installed as interim president following a military coup, which was catalyzed when the Liberal Alliance vice presidential candidate was assassinated. Under Vargas, Brazil's identity became focused on cultural identity, and it was during this time that Miranda assumed the costume of the Bionis and rocketed to stardom as this icon of Brazilianness. When Carmen Miranda was invited to the United States to perform, Vargas saw her as a perfect emissary of Brazil's cultural identity, way more effective than political diplomats trying to go to the United States to do the same basic thing.
0: Yeah, he really was happy to fund this trip because he thought, this is gonna look great, Brazil is gonna look great, everybody's gonna think of us as being as wonderful and vibrant as this young woman. To him, it was a perfect win. But in addition to being seen by President Vargas as a way to ingratiate Brazil to the rest of the world, Carmen was also part of Lee Schubert's machinations. The Streets of Paris was scheduled to open at the same time that the World's Fair was underway in New York. And there was a lot of concern throughout the theater community that the fair was going to upstage
1: their shows and tank ticket sales. But with Carmen appearing and singing in Portuguese, the show had an international flair and a hook that the audiences really found irresistible. The Streets of Paris was a huge hit, thanks entirely to Schubert's hire of Carmen Miranda. If you look at the Playbill for The Streets of Paris, all the other headliners have multiple parts because it was a musical review and that was how it normally worked. Miranda had only two. Even though she's listed as a featured performer in just those two numbers, which totaled up to less than 10 minutes of stage time, she's credited with saving Broadway that year. Carmen
0: charmed crowds in America just as she had done at home. To promote the show and to make additional money, Lee Schubert started arranging for Carmen and her band to play in nightclubs throughout New York. She also garnered lucrative endorsement and spokesperson deals.
1: Lee Schubert had cut a deal with Carmen that was heavily loaded to be beneficial to him, so he took 50% of her earnings. Even so, she was making a lot of money even after Schubert took his cut. Yeah,
0: there was one story that she had saved up something like $40,000 and sent it back to her family in Brazil. So in the 1930s, that was no small change. And next up, we're going to talk about Carmen's transition from the Broadway stage onto the silver screen in the U.S. But first, we're going to pause for a little sponsor break. Almost for the second that Carmen Miranda stepped onto the New York stage, she had the attention of Hollywood as well. Studios were very quickly eager to put her into films in the United States and capitalize on her appeal as a fresh new talent from the tropics.
1: Her first movie made in the United States was Down Argentine Way, which came out in 1940. She was still starring in the streets of Paris while this was filmed, and to accommodate her performance schedule, the production was shot entirely in New York, even so, though, this was a non-stop situation for her. I, Based on everybody I know in theater, I cannot imagine doing a run of a play while also filming a movie. at the, <laughs> That sounds exhausting. Uh, just the same, though, her musical performance in this film is really vibrant and ener- energetic. You would never know that she was running from one job to the next with basically no breaks. For the next six years, she stayed with 20th Century Fox in a 10-picture deal. Yeah, she...
0: You had to admire that woman's work ethic. She really, like, never, ever stopped. She never said no to a job. She basically just kept going and going and going, which is probably why she was such a very tiny person. (laughs) Like, I think she probably could have eaten 18,000 calories a day and not have ever gained a pound because she never stopped moving. Um, And again, I don't know how she brought that level of energy, because she is a really energetic performer. She did make a trip back to Brazil in 1940, but unfortunately, that did not go especially well. While she was originally greeted warmly as she returned home, things changed very quickly during her first homecoming performance. Instead of welcoming her with open arms the fans in her home country felt that she had traded in her Brazilian identity to become more appealing to American audiences. When she greeted the audience in Rio in English and then performed the campy song The South American Way from the film Down Argentine Way, she sang to an uncharacteristically silent crowd. She was so upset by the experience that she canceled the rest of her Brazilian homecoming performances.
1: There was also a strange phenomenon at play in the way the United States embraced Carmen Miranda. Stylized versions of her head wrap also became really popular at upscale stores, and her costumes were inspiring fashions that no Biana could ever have afforded. And that is part of the
0: complicated nature of Miranda's success in the U.S. and how it was perceived back home. So the Bayanas who inspired her original costume in Banana da Terra were part of Brazil's African culture. After Brazilian abolition in the late 19th century, Yoruba peoples who had been taken to Bahia, Brazil, from Africa as enslaved people, then had to figure out how to make a living once they were free. And one popular vocation was selling food in street carts, and those carts were traditionally run by women, the Bayanas. And while the Bayanas came to be seen as a really vital part of Brazil's culture... The version that evolved in Carmen Miranda's representation for audiences in the U.S. was seen as performative and inauthentic. To many, it was both cultural appropriation and betrayal. There was a layer of added complexity because, again, that came from originally the African population of Brazil, and here was a very light-skinned woman who had taken it into another country, and then it had gotten really mashed up with a lot of glitz.
1: I think that's like the a textbook example. When we talk about the differences between a cultural exchange and an appropriation, one of the elements is making a big profit off of it. So when you know, clothiers were making these high-dollar fashions that were based off of this originally Afro-Brazilian Afro-Brazi- attire, like that is is one of the definitions of like where that line gets crossed. Yeah. So That ill-received homecoming performance really affected Miranda. She had been so universally loved as a performer that this was really the first time she had been on a stage and not gotten thunderous applause. But she didn't immediately go back to the United States. Two months later, after that one bad performance, she performed a new show as a one-week engagement. And one of the songs that she sang was a new samba that she had commissioned that was titled, They Say I Came Back Americanized. And in it, she made fun of that night that she had flopped so badly. She won back her hometown crowd by showing that she wasn't afraid to make fun of herself and that she was able to still put on a fantastic show.
0: But while the Brazilian audience seemed to forgive Carmen Miranda a little bit because of this, Carmen Miranda didn't really forgive them. She was still really hurt by how things had gone. She quickly returned to the U.S. to pursue her film career, but because of that self-mocking stage show, she was still able to leave kind of on her own terms as something of a success rather than a disgrace. And she was once
1: again stepping into the role of ambassador. Her presence in films quickly became a way that the United States could show some unity between the U.S. and Latin America, making North and South America look like a united front on the world stage as World War II was threatening to draw more countries into the conflict.
0: That Night in Rio was Carmen's next film, in which she appeared in a full silver version of her stylized costume, complete with tall fruit and flower headpiece and just dripping with beads. That Night in Rio features the first time that Carmen Miranda had spoken lines in the in a film in the United States, rather than just appearing in musical numbers.
1: Next, she made Weekend in Havana with Alice Faye and Cesar Romero. It was once again a performance that included both singing and speaking. As her speaking roles became more frequent, she continued to play up an exaggerated version of her Brazilian accent and awkward English language phrasing, even as her English became progressively more proficient off-screen.
0: Yeah, there are a number of interviews that I've seen with people that co-starred with her in these films, and they were like, that's not how she actually talked. That was like a character that she was playing for audiences. Uh, Her film, Down Argentine Way, that we mentioned earlier, was actually banned in Argentina due to its portrayal of the country and culture. Similarly, Weekend in Havana angered Cubans. In making Carmen Miranda the representative of all Latin American cultures, Hollywood had managed to just lump them all together and not represent any of them well at all.
1: I think that connects to sort of the the greater legacy of her work is that for a, a lot of people in the United States uh the way people imagine specifically Brazil but a lot of South American culture is in this like stylized performative Carmen Miranda kind of way as like a monolith <laughs> yep yeah, like she set a lot of stereotypes of um Latin American women that still exist today for sure Carmen Miranda had a career-endangering scandal in the early 1940s as she was cranking out pictures for 20th Century Fox. She was taking publicity photos with Cesar Romero, and he lifted her up in the air just in time for photographers to catch a photo of her without any underwear on. While she was known as the Brazilian bombshell and her sex appeal was part of what was making audiences really respond to her work, this incident led to a lot of rumors. Really, she had been getting out of costume when she had been called to the set for photos, so she had run out really quickly, either forgetting or skipping her undergarments. I don't know what dress she was wearing, but sometimes you need to not have on undergarments because there will be a panty line in the photos. The tabloid press, though, was really quick to suggest that she was part of a Hollywood pornography ring, and there was concern that her career would never recover. The studio made the decision to stand by her, and over time, though, the scandal faded.
0: Yeah, her dress was actually like it was a really long, full skirt. So it was kind of just like the perfect storm of a lift where her skirt whipped up over her into the air a little bit, like kind of like a bell. And so it opened up just enough that they got a full shot. Uh, It was very embarrassing for her and the studio, and I'm sure for Cesar Romero, it was a mess.
1: And it's still the kind of thing that happens all the time with, like, (laughs) women getting out of cars to get on the red carpet and then photographers taking pictures that are basically upskirts.
0: Yeah. Well, and I wonder, like, who took that photo? Because somebody shared it with the press And if it was a publicity photo for the studio, you would think they would have locked it down. But I clearly don't know what was going on there and how it got out. I'm sure someone offered that photographer a lot of money to try to ruin someone's life. Um, Not long after all of this, 20th Century Fox bought out Carmen's contract from Lee Schubert for $60,000. Up to that point, she was still giving him 50% of all of her earnings. So, there is some debate about how much more beneficial things were after this buyout. Uh, Cesar Romero's agent had actually urged 20th Century Fox to get her out of that contract. Uh, But she was doing, I think, a lot better afterwards. Uh, And at the age of 33, she was able to buy a huge home in Beverly Hills, large enough that her entire family was able to move in with her. In
1: 1943, she made the movie The Gang's All Here which was directed by Busby Berkeley. And this was, as Berkeley's other movies, a massive spectacle. It featured the song and dance number The Lady in the Tutti Frutti Hat, which became an odd defining moment in Carmen Miranda's career. There were lines of chorus girls dancing with bananas that were bigger than they were. And in some ways, it was really the apex of just absurd, over-the-top caricature that wound up defining Miranda's career as a performer. Yeah, it's one of those things that some people
0: love it because it really is such a nutty spectacle. I mean, it is wacky to watch that whole song and dance number. These bananas are, like, seven feet tall. (laughs) Um, And it is, I mean, anybody that's seen a Busby Berkeley musical knows there's lots of, like, geometric and kaleidoscopic arrangement and choreography of all of the chorus women. And so it's bananas, you know, swinging into frame and out of frame. But it is definitely, like, a, a silly sort of thing. In a way, it's like some people will say, it's fun, she wasn't taking herself too seriously. And others make the very valid criticism that, yes, but she also makes it seem like all of Latin America is like crazy people with giant bananas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I th- I think for a lot of people who, um, you say Carmen Randa, and they have a very, very vague familiarity, like the image that pops into your head probably has the gigantic bananas in it.
0: Yeah, or the hat. It's I highly recommend hunting that down just for the uh historical reference of it because this was a time, you know, the the late 30s and early 40s had a lot of very gaudy and wacky musicals and that was exactly the genre that Carmen Miranda really succeeded in, but it is sometimes weird to watch him and be like who came up with this? <laughs> um and it's Busby Berkeley, but uh, Miranda's seemingly endless upward trajectory in the film industry in the United States finally experienced a drop in the post-war years. Because as the U.S. and the globe rebuilt following World War II, that flamboyant style that had made Carmen Miranda a perfect distraction during the war suddenly seemed kind of over the top, and the audience tastes were shifting to be a little bit more focused on... Uh, kind of family values-type entertainment and more about, you know, this uh, quieter approach. Um, In the meantime, Carmen was also ready to move on to trying something new in film. She certainly was aware that the novelty of her Tutti Frutti hat had worn thin at that point.
1: Coming up, we will get into her effort to reinvent herself after World War II, but first, we will take a little break for one of our sponsors. (music)
0: In 1946, Carmen Miranda underwent an image change, or at least she tried to. She didn't renew her contract with 20th Century Fox when it came up, and she dyed her hair blonde. Uh, She may have had some facial work done as well. Uh, And she was cast in the film Copacabana with Groucho Marx. In it, she played not one character, but two. And when Copacabana came out in 1947, it didn't do terribly well. While audiences were not as interested in Miranda's nutty and extravagant act as they once had been, which was kind of what one of those characters was that she was playing, it also seemed that they weren't really interested in seeing her portray another type of role either.
1: While she was filming Copacabana, Carmen met her husband, David Sebastian, who worked as a producer's assistant on the film, and they got married on March 17, 1947 was not totally a match made in heaven. David really struggled in the house where he was the only person who didn't speak Portuguese. And shortly after the marriage, Carmen was pregnant and she had a miscarriage. Heartbroken at this loss, she really threw herself into her work and she took on a schedule that was a lot like the one she had in her early career.
0: Yeah, so just like when she was doing Streets of Paris in New York, on Broadway, and filming at the same time. At this point, she was filming and doing concerts and recording uh, music all the time. Because even though her film career was lagging, she was still doing pretty well as a singer. And she starred in a comedy called Scared Stiff with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis in 1953, several years into this. And she got terrible reviews for it. Her career, which was having problems, her bumpy marriage, and her miscarriage were all really taking an emotional toll on the performer. And for the first time in her life, she started drinking. By the end of 1954, Carmen Miranda was not well to treat her depression, which she was going through because of all of this problematic stuff going on in her life, which, ironically, if you watch her film, she still looks like the happiest human on Earth, so I can't imagine what her inner turmoil must have been like at that point. She was having shock treatments done to treat this depression. It caused her memory to falter, and she started having stage fright. Uh, Apparently, she would sometimes forget songs, and it really upset her. Uh, So she traveled back to Brazil once more at the urging of her sister. And being back in Rio with her friends, relaxing, she was not working at that point, had a really positive effect. And slowly she really started to feel a lot better.
1: She was thinking about staying for good, but her husband David, who had also become her business manager and her agent, had jobs waiting for her back in Los Angeles. She needed to go back to the United States to fulfill these contracts.
0: And as television was growing more ubiquitous with Every Day, this offered another chance at renewal for Carmen and her career. Her husband, David, had gotten her guest spots on a number of programs. And television seemed like a really, really good fit for the Brazilian bombshell.
1: The Thursday evening of August 4th, 1955, Carmen worked late into the night. She was filming a show with Jimmy Durante. And because of the the threat of an actor's strike, they were putting in extra hours to get as much done as they could before things might be put on hold with the strike.
0: And at one point, while filming a dance number... Carmen fell to her knees. She was out of breath and said so. This is all on film. You can see it. Um, she basically says, I can't catch my breath. And Jimmy Duranty kind of makes a joke, and he helped her up. And she continued to dance, and she finished the show without any other issues.
1: After they wrapped up filming for the day, Duranty and Miranda performed on the set for the crew. And then a few of the cast members went to Miranda's home for a private party, After the party at about 3 a.m., she and her husband went to bed in their separate bedrooms.
0: Her body was found at 10.30 a.m. the next morning. Her husband David had thought that he would let her sleep late since she had been up quite late the night before. And it appeared that she had gone to the bathroom to remove her makeup, apply night cream, and basically get ready for bed, and then she
1: collapsed in between the bathroom and her bedroom. Her physician, Dr. W. L. Markser, determined that she had a heart attack She was 46, and the news of her passing, which was widely reported, was really shocking to people. Yeah,
0: I think uh, because she was such an amazing performer, like, the thought of her not having that incredible life force when she had been doing her shows literally right up until the day she died was just too difficult to parse for some people. And in the days after her death, thousands of mourners visited her body at the Beverly Hills Church of the Good Shepherd before her remains were then transported to Brazil. As her coffin was delivered from the airport to its final resting place in Rio de Janeiro, the streets along the route were crowded with people.
1: The entire nation really mourned her en masse. And over the course of 24 hours, her body was visited by more than 60,000 people who wanted to pay their respects. In
0: twenty fifteen, a permanent exhibit celebrating Carmen Miranda was added to the Museum of Image and Sound in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. She has really sort of seen a resurgence in popularity. People are examining some of the problems of her career uh, and its representation of Latin American culture in a in a way that forgives her a little bit um recognizing kind of the context of the times mm-hmm. and how she wasn't always in control of the creative aspects of all of these films. Uh, you know, keep in mind, she was making money and then often still sending it back to Brazil. So to her, and again, she never said no to a job. She turned nothing down. So uh, I think, you know, people are are kind of taking that into account uh, while still being aware of the problematic aspects of some of the images she created, yeah, uh, yeah,
1: it's a that's a tricky one. When you and I were talking about what we were going to do for that um, that canceled live show, uh, that and I was sort of poking around trying to generate a list of things that seemed promising. That was one of the things that was the most interest interesting to me as I was um, poking around. Was sort of how the perception of her. In Brazil and in a lot of the rest of, uh, you know, neighboring parts of South America has really evolved in the decades since she was working and since she died.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a shift. I imagine it's one of those things, and I hope it's one of those things that will continue to be examined and discussed and learned from. I think it's a good example, not in that it is a good thing, but it is a good example of how quickly things get out of control when Mm -hmm. you are, you know, trying to, when people who do not know about a culture are trying to represent it in an entertainment venue, which was happening a lot, you know, she was being put in these films and while she may have initially adopted uh, her costume, I don't think she designed all of them going forward. And probably there were a lot of hands in that particular pie. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's like I said, it's good as a, a an example to be examined of how yeah. those things can, even if they are perhaps well intentioned. I don't know what those people were thinking. <laughs> um Well, and it's also or really, maybe they just didn't care, which is also very possible.
1: Yeah, it's also a really good example coming from the other direction of how easy it is to glom on to this one rep- representation from another culture. Uh-huh. And so, like, imagine that that is indicative of the entire culture, and that it's some kind of monolith. Um, yeah. Because like like I said earlier, a lot of ways that, that especially Latino women are still stereotyped, like, they trace really back to, directly to Carmen Miranda. Oh, for sure.
0: I mean, her first speaking roles in films made in the U.S. were almost always a hot-headed, jealous girlfriend. Um, And that, I mean, continued to carry forward and be, like, such a stereotype. And it's like, well... um, It reminds me of an exhibit that I saw. This is gonna sound totally unrelated, but give me a second. Uh, An exhibit I saw years and years ago that was Treasures of the Forbidden City which was uh, a lot of pieces from China's Forbidden City that were on display. And one of them was a huge, huge tapestry that had been done that was supposed to represent kind of like China's people in the global... along with their global, like, trading partners. But what I noticed is that, like, their representations of other cultures similarly were very simplified and almost arrested in one position, like all of the people who were supposed to be English were dressed like Henry VIII, even though they were standing next to people who were supposed to be American, who were all dressed like they were in the middle of the Revolutionary War. So it was similarly like they, they glommed onto one aspect of any given culture and represented all of the people in the that tapestry as looking that way, even though they were clearly, like, completely discordant in terms of the times that they existed together. And uh, so it's... This is a problem that's gone on for a long time. (laughs) And we're still examining it today. Do you also have some listener mail for us? I do! It's about the Lumiere Brothers. It is from our listener Kelly, and she writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, I have been listening to your podcast for about a year now, and I love it. Your shows are always engaging and informative. I listened to your two-part episode about the Lumiere Brothers several months ago and was taken with their story, not least because I'm a photography and cinema buff. The podcast had faded from memory, and i thought no more about them until early April. It was then that my husband and I traveled to France on vacation, splitting our time between Paris and Lyon. When we arrived at the latter and were setting our itinerary, he casually mentioned that Lyon was the place where the Lumiere brothers had lived. I had forgotten all about where their factory had been. I made him walk about five kilometers to the Lumiere Museum, which is housed in the former villa of Antoine Lumiere, their father. The brother's house uh, was demolished a few decades ago to make way for a real estate development that never happened. The museum itself is wonderful, with a history not only of the Lumiere brothers' innovations in photography and cinema, but also the technological advances that preceded the brothers' myriad successes in the still and moving picture industries. Uh, She says she won't get into uh, describing everything in the museum because it's amazing. She said, instead, let me get to the most important part the frontage of the Lumiere factory where the first ever movie was shot still stands. It's been preserved inside a glass and steel structure and outside are clear markers of where the first movie was shot, including where the camera would have had to have been positioned to record the film. She also sent pictures of it. She said, visiting this museum and standing in the place where this first movie was shot was a cinephile's dream. It was a privilege to experience them both, especially with the background of the research you'd done for the podcast, the details of which came flooding back as I walked through the exhibits. I recommend the visit to anyone with even a meager interest in film or photography. Uh, And then uh, she suggests another topic for us. But that is really cool. I, like I said, have not been to the Lumiere Museum but I sure want to go now. I wanted to go before. Now it is doubly so. So thank you so much for sharing that with us, Kelly. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us at mistinhistory.com and across the spectrum of social media as in History. So come to our website, explore all of the back episodes of the show from way before Tracy and I have ever been here. Uh, and you can look at show notes from the ones that Tracy and I have done together. We look forward to seeing you at mistinhistory.com.